Well, that's a somber good morning. That's much better. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> um, I get it. That's a, I mean, that's a heavy reading. It's hard to kind of respond to that uh, with anything but a sense of weight and burden. And so we're going to look uh, at those words of Jesus here together in just a minute. But just to, to kind of give us some context, um, this fall we've been looking at God's very heart. That's the series we're in. And what we said is what, what we want is to to bring our hearts before God's very heart, and that we all desperately need that in this life, in this world, and particularly in this season, I think, man, it's just, there's been a lot coming at us, and we feel the weight and the burden and the bruises and the accumulative impact of life in this season, and this is a chance for God to minister to us in the depth of who we are. Um, He loves us, and he wants to draw us near to his heart, and so we've been discovering what his heart is like together over the past several weeks. And we've looked at God's heart. We've looked at Jesus to get a glimpse into the depths of God's heart. We've discovered that God's heart is gentle, that it's lowly, that it's comforting. And so who would not want to be drawn to a heart like that uh, if God's heart looks like that? But today, uh, as you might imagine, we come to a very different aspect of God's heart. Uh, And we encounter that in Matthew 23. And, And it's an aspect that makes us uncomfortable. I think understandably so. When we read Jesus' words here, what we glimpse is the anger of God, the anger that emits from God's heart. And it does us uncomfortable, but it comes into full view here in Matthew 23. And so I want us to look at these verses together. This Uh, This section of Matthew 23 is often referred to as the seven woes, uh, because Jesus says this phrase again and again and again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so we're going to look at this passage where Jesus ultimately, it just climaxes with that stinging verse, right, in, uh, in verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And we intentionally stopped there because I wanted us to feel, in some sense, the the weight, the awkwardness, the intensity of Jesus' words. Wow, this is is the Jesus that we've been talking about, the same Jesus. This is not a different Jesus. This is the Jesus who is lowly and humble and comforting. Uh, But it makes us uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable. I, I, no one's ever given me a mug with that verse on it, right? Uh, not a lot in my Instagram feed this week, you know, reminding me, hey, you, you serpents, you brood of vipers, hashtag be encouraged, you know, like it's just not one of those, it's not one of those verses. And so I think it's easy to kind of, let's just, let's kind of maybe, can we work around that one? Can we kind of just pat, that's not for us, that's not for me, that's, and so the, the real question, all kidding aside, is th- does this create a problem for us, right? The, do, do these words of Jesus create a problem, a, a contradiction, right? Can a heart be gentle and humble and comforting and also burn and burst with anger the way that Jesus' heart does here? I would suggest that many people, many Christians even, and maybe many of us in this room believe on some level or at least struggle with this idea that that the anger of God is incompatible with the love of God. 
right? I think that's a very real struggle for, for most of us. And so if that's true, if, if those things are not irreconcilable, if God is both loving and angry, if that's true and we can see that that's true, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our hearts? If we're drawing our hearts to God's heart, how does that actually shape our hearts in a way that encourages us and heals us and comforts us? And so that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to find out the answer to those questions. So I want to encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, if you want to open up that, one of those black Bibles that's in the seat back near you, we love kind of looking at God's Word together, and so I want to invite you to have that open in front of you. Uh, in the black Bible, it's page 828, and, uh, and we're going to look and see what did Jesus' words reveal about God's anger? That's our task this morning together. What, what do you want to teach us, Lord, about your anger? And so the first thing I want us to consider is this question of what is the nature of God's anger? What does Matthew 23 reveal to us about the nature of God's anger? And, and this is what I propose. I propose that anger actually is not God's nature. It's not endemic to his heart, but it arises out of his heart naturally from his love, because of his love. And so we're going we're gonna to unpack that and, and consider that. But that's the claim. The anger is not... God's nature, but arises naturally from his love. So Jesus, uh, in other words, is not like the people in our life who are just always angry, right? Do you know any of those people? They're just, there's just a sense that they're always kind of frustrated and angry, uh, and it just bubbles out. They lash out. They can be abusive. These are people who are not safe to be around. They're dangerous, right? Uh, Jesus is not like that person. Jesus is not either. He's not like the person who is... Uh, who, who is never angry, right? The person in your life who, who seems to never say anything, even when something's called for, even when it would be appropriate to be angry, someone who's passive, uh, in other words, who's indifferent. And Jesus is not like that. He's not inherently angry on the one hand, and he's not inherently indifferent on the other. And I think that's important because we have to be honest. Jesus does get angry, and it's not just here in Matthew 23. There's plenty of examples of his anger coming out. And it's not like these examples. It's, it's a natural movement of his heart that emerges when he feels like what he loves is threatened. I think that's a helpful way to think about anger. When Jesus gets angered, it's because he's concerned about something he loves that's being threatened with destruction or hurt. That's what gets him angry. In other words, anger is always, in some sense, it's a fighting emotion, right? It's a justice emotion on some level. Anger says this, this, this matters. What we're talking about here is important, and what's happening is wrong. Now, that can be justified or not, but that's, that's kind of at the core of the emotion of anger. And so you might think about Jesus as kind of like a mama bear, right, with her cubs, that is at the heart of Jesus' anger. He gets mad when what he loves is threatened. That's when he gets angry. And that's exactly what he's doing in Matthew 23, 1 through 36. Jesus verbally attacks the religious leaders of his day, and he does it with, I mean, he is brutal. He goes after them. I mean, this rhetorical flourish is as, painful as it is, beautiful. I mean, the, the words and the images and stuff, he's really, he's leveraging all that he is in language, right, to bring this to bear and to highlight to them 
what's gone wrong. But then, this, this is what's fascinating. Listen to what he says in 37. We didn't read this verse, but this is what he says immediately after he kind of goes on this, uh, this invective. He says in verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. I recently uh, heard a story uh, this week about a, a man who owned a, uh, a, a barn and the barn burned down and he was going through the ashes of the barn and as he was walking along, he came uh, to this huge hen that was charred and dead. And it stood out to him because he was like, why, this seems unnecessary. This hen could have flown away or run out, didn't have to burn and die. And so he was looking at it, he, he kind of nudged it with his foot and when he did, from under the wings, all these chicks ran out from under the charred remains of this hen. And I heard that story, and it just made me think of this, these words from Jesus. I mean, this is what he's saying. I've longed to draw you under my wings, right? Like this, this mother hen had used her body to shield these chicks from the searing flames. And in a sense, that's Jesus' heart. That's what he is saying here in these verses. His heart it's not by nature angry. Anger is not what pleases him or its deepest reaction to people. Rather, anger naturally arises when what Jesus loves is threatened. Right? It's an extension of his love to cover over that which is threatened, whether it's his people or if it's his father's will or his plans or if it's his father's honor and glory. Jesus gets angry to defend what he loves from being threatened. So you see, anger, I would say, is, is absolutely compatible with God's love. In fact, genuine love will at times demand anger. Mercy and justice, they go together. And I'll just say, as a parent, if you're a parent, you know that. You feel that. You experience that. They go together. Real love gets angry sometimes. The more Jesus loves his people, the angrier he should be at everything that harms them. And so anger can be good, can be the most loving response. Now, having said that, I think we have to be careful. We have to be careful. That doesn't make all or even most anger good. It all depends on why somebody is angry, right? What's at the, what's at the core? Where, where is it coming from? It, it might be helpful to think of anger as kind of a column of smoke on the horizon, right? You can see the Causing the fire. Uh, and, and from a distance, you may not know. It could be a prescribed burn on a farm. Or it could be a wild fire raging out of control. Uh, you could have someone burn in a bunch of trash. Or it could be someone's home on fire. And so what you have to do is you have to follow its source to know what is actually causing the smoke. And the same thing is true with anger. And so let's follow the column of smoke. What is it? that's causing Jesus anger? What draws out his anger? This is our second question. In Matthew 23, what we discover is Jesus' anger is aimed specifically in this instance at abuses of power that harm the weak. That's what he's upset about. If you read across these seven woes, that is a common theme. 
that Jesus is angered by the abuses of power that harm the weak. So that's the claim. Let's see if that's true. Let's look at this together. First, just notice this. Jesus isn't talking to just anyone and everyone, is he? He is addressing a specific group of people, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the leaders of Israel and the nation of Israel. Jesus is addressing the powerful people in Jerusalem, the scribes and Pharisees. Again and again, he says that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes and the Pharisees were self-appointed religious leaders of Israel. They were the experts in the law, God's law, and the teachers of law, which they had expanded, and they were essentially the guides for every aspect of life in Israel. Israel in the first century. There was no separation, too. I think it's important to realize this. There's no separation between religion and economics and politics and personal life. It all is kind of mashed in together. And you see this uh, embodied in the temple. And that's actually, we're told in, in chapter 24, that's where this is taking place. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And it's this reminder, this visual reminder of the epicenter of power in Israel. It's like if you had the White House and the Capitol and the Supreme Court all mashed together, and then also the the epicenter of religious life. All those things together. And then the way the law functioned, it's as if the law of God and and the Constitution, our Constitution, were mashed together. That's the, the functionality of God's Word in first century Israel. And so all that comes to bear, and Jesus is looking at these elite leaders in his day, and he's saying, this great power you have comes with great responsibility, both for the individuals in Israel and for the overall condition of the nation. It's for both. And so to these elite leaders, Jesus is talking in Matthew 23. That's who he's speaking to. So what does Jesus call them out for? Their abuse of power. Let's look at three examples. First, They tout the keys to the kingdom, but they lock people out. That's what he says. That's verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. By claiming authority to handle the law, they are effectively holding the keys to people experiencing life with God, to entering into his kingdom. They get to say who is in and who is out with God. However, Jesus says, instead of letting people come in, they're actually creating a dynamic where they're locking people out of life with God. How are they doing this? Well, this is the second way they're abusing power. Not only do they tout the keys and lock people out, they emphasize rules but miss the deeper meaning. They emphasize rules but miss the deeper meaning. Look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In other words, they have become obsessed with their own power. They focus on the minutia of the law to the extreme. Jesus says, look, there is valid guidance in this agrarian society on how to do things like present your produce in a way that honors and worships the Lord. If you want to look at that, you can look in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 27. This is actually prescribed. They're trying to follow the law, but, the, but they've lost something in the process. Instead of making it about people's hearts, Jesus says, you have made it about counting leaves and seeds. You've missed the point. You can quote the law 
by letter, but you don't understand its essence. You now know verses by heart, but you don't get the deeper meaning of God's heart, his justice, his mercy, his faithfulness. That's why Jesus calls them blind guides. Rather than liberating people, they are burdening them. Rather than offering grace, they are releasing and releasing them to good works. They are crushing them. They're crushing them with this heartless, lifeless religion. And Jesus calls them out on it. And then finally, the abuse of power comes through not only in touting the keys and locking people out, emphasizing rules and missing the deeper meaning, but appearing righteous without and rotten within. Righteous on the outside, rotten on the inside. Jesus calls these leaders hypocrites over and over, and in verse 27 and 28, he puts this vivid picture to it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites over and over. This term hypocrites actually comes from Greek theater, ancient Greek theater. And it was meant as a compliment if you were an actor. What it meant was you were really good at playing a role that wasn't really who you were. You're a great actor, right? Jesus doesn't mean it as a compliment, just to be clear. These leaders were playing a part. They looked great on the outside, good people saying good things, even doing some good things, but on the inside, they were spiritually dead, is what Jesus says. They were living a double life, They were hiding the fact that on the inside, it didn't match who they were on the outside. Jesus calls them unclean, spiritually rotten, full of dead people's bones, he says. And that would have been a particularly stinging commentary for these Pharisees and scribes. To come into contact with a dead body would have meant you were ceremonially and spiritually unclean. You couldn't be in God's presence because you'd been with something that was unclean. Jesus says, you aren't just in contact with dead bodies. You actually have dead bodies in you. You are full of death. Full of death. You're liars. You're pretenders. You're hypocrites. It is devastating when a person turns out not to be who they said they were. Devastating. So what's the theme here? What's Jesus saying? These leaders have power. They had a gift from the Lord to open the way to heaven, to convey the the beautiful and powerful heart of God. And to lead by example, but instead they were untrue, they were unjust, they were unkind, they were selfish hypocrites. I think we have to ask, why is it that Jesus focuses so much on the leaders? I mean, most people, not just leaders, have some aspect of this going on in their life. 
I do. You do. It's varying degrees. But in other words, this, this, is, this seems focused particularly on leaders. Why is it not that Jesus you know, now turns the gaze clearly? It would be easy to just pivot and say, now you and you and you to the crowd. He doesn't. He focuses on the leaders. Now, ultimately, his anger is aimed at all sin, but he's focused on a particular expression of that sin in this case. Everyone sins. Everyone can be a hypocrite, but why focus on these leaders? I think it's because Jesus knows how we as human beings work. He made us. He understands us. Most people, most of the time, follow the crowd. It's just how we work. I mean, we love to think that we're rugged individualists and we do our own thing. But we follow the crowd. Maybe your crowd's different than my crowd, but you're following a crowd on some level. And here's why that matters, because leaders shape culture. They have an impact, an undue influence, in other words, and responsibility. And I wonder what Jesus would say if he were to turn that laser-focused gaze, his anger, upon the religious leaders, the leaders in the church in our day. And I include myself in this. Would he find that we say we open the kingdom of God to people, but we teach a watered-down message of mere moralism or emotional experience, hoping to build up numbers, draw more people, start a movement? When in reality, we're closing people off from the true gospel. Would he say that we focus too much on building our own reputation, accomplishing our own ends? Would he say that we're following our own vision, trying to build influential churches with incredible worship music and powerful preaching but lack integrity? Neglect the weighter matters of the heart, that's what Jesus said, seeking justice, showing mercy. Things like discipling one another, loving one another, loving our neighbor. Learning what it means day after day after day to be faithful and holy in the power of his spirit. What if Jesus not only turned that eye on the religious leaders, but on our cultural leaders? Again, remember... The scribes and the Pharisees occupy both spheres of influence. And so Jesus, I think, is addressing both kinds of leadership. Those who walk in the halls of our universities. Those who walk in our Capitol buildings, who fill our screens and populate our feeds. The brilliant people, the beautiful people, the powerful people. I wonder what vision of the good life they are offering us. What do they claim is true? that it is misbelief in God and his word is delusional or dangerous or regressive? Do they speak of justice and equality but know nothing of the cross of Christ? Do they speak of reconciliation but know nothing of the reconciliation purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf? Do these leaders say one thing and do another? Do they present themselves as righteous and enlightened while being no better than those they condemn? Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus is speaking to all those in positions of power. 
whether it's in the church, in our culture, whether it's at your office or in your home, when he sees the abuse of power, the distortion of truth, the lack of integrity that harms others, he burns with anger. Jesus is gentle and meek, humble and lowly. He is comforting, but he is also fierce in his love, and he is mighty. He does not take our sin lightly, especially when done by the powerful and those with influence at the expense of the weak. So what good does knowing all of this do us? Remember, our goal is to do what? It's to put our heart before his heart, to draw near to the very heart of God. And so what I would say is if, if you could just allow yourself, allow yourself to be honest enough to put your heart into Matthew 23, to stand in the presence of Jesus and to hear his words, I wonder what you would hear him speak to you. How would that affect your heart? This brings up our third and final question. How can Jesus' anger actually affect our hearts? And I want to suggest there's three ways. And my hope is that this encourages you. Because I do think ultimately this is a word of encouragement from Jesus. Because he loves us, he gets angry. And so we need to receive his anger. So how can Jesus' anger affect our hearts? I would say three ways. It can reassure us, it can caution us, and it can comfort us. Real quick, just invite you, let God's anger reassure you. When injustice or sin or wickedness is happening and you see it, there is actually nothing more reassuring than a powerful and good person stepping into those circumstances, being moved by it, and vowing to stop it. That is a great reassurance. When that happens, the things in your life or in your world that are making you appropriately angry, right? And I stress the word appropriately. There's a lot of outrage right now in our culture. Holy anger, appropriate anger, anger that lines up with the very character and commands of God. When you make things and when you respond with an appropriate anger, let me say this. Jesus is way more upset than you are about it. He has a far purer heart, and he sees far greater and eternal implications for all these things happening in our life and our world. Jesus sees, he knows, and he vows to act before all unrighteousness and injustice, and he will set it right. He will. He promises to, especially when it involves the strong abusing the weak. He sees all sin, all wrongdoing, and he will deal with it, and we need to trust that. That's reassuring to me. I hope it's reassuring to you. Let God's anger reassure you. Second, let God's anger caution you. Jesus' anger cautions us in our own anger from becoming self-righteous in our anger. And I think from becoming resentful actually towards God ultimately uh, for showing his grace to other people. I'm probably the only person that struggles with that. (laughs) Resentment. Again and again, we sang about it this morning. 
This beautiful word from the Lord describing his anger as slow and how it's paired with his mercy and his grace. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's anger is slow. Why is it slow? It's slow because his heart, his fundamental disposition towards us is love. He loves us. Scripture tells us how much he loves us. He, he gave his own son. He loves us so much. He loves to show grace and mercy. He loves to show forgiveness. He loves to pardon. He loves to give life. His heart is that all would come to him and trust in him and know him and life with him. Ezekiel 33 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Live. That's his heart. Live with me, he says. Know my love for you. Jesus' anger is fierce, but it is slow, which reminds us that his anger emerges from his mercy and grace. And so it reassures us, it cautions us, and then finally it comforts us. His anger actually comforts us. Jesus speaking out with anger, it makes us uncomfortable. We said that at the very beginning. It makes us uncomfortable. You know why it makes us uncomfortable? Because we rightly wonder, do I deserve it? Are you angry at me, God? You're talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, but maybe this is a word for me. Maybe you're angry with me. Here's the truth. The truth is that God sees all of who you are. All of who you are. All that you've done. All that you're going to do. And what no one else sees, he sees. He knows what you're really like. The truth is that God has every reason to be angry with me and with you. The Bible says that we are all hypocrites, that we've all sinned, that we've all fallen short. And here's, here's the amazing turn of the gospel, right? This is where Jesus' anger takes a shocking turn. Despite his angry rebuke, he doesn't, he doesn't call down fire on them, right, in this moment. In fact, what's fascinating in the gospel, he doesn't bring punishment on them. What he does is he turns from rebuke to silence. Silence as he is making his way before Pilate and to the cross. Jesus, Isaiah says, is like a sheep being led to the slaughter for me and for you. He takes our sins upon himself Matthew 26 says that Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, of his anger, his justified anger. What does that mean? It means that on the cross, Jesus takes the consequences of our sin, our double life, our hypocrisy, all that stuff that's death in us. He takes it on himself. God's anger, he takes our place. He took God's anger on himself, our sins on himself, and he set us free to live with him, to be who we really are, beloved sons and daughters of the king. Jesus' anger is not something we need to fear. It's something we need to praise God for. It's aimed ultimately at that which destroys what he loves, and he loves you, and he loves me, and he died to show us that. This is the God we need, the God who is truly good, who's angered by evil, even the evil within our own hearts. 
His anger is the just response of a gracious God. It is his loving anger. His loving anger that reassures us and cautions us and comforts us. Praise God. Let's pray.